Welcome to Right Spokane Perspective with your host, Tim. And Shannon. It's opinion, fact, information, and your alert system. Stay tuned and enjoy the show. And welcome back to Right Spokane Perspective. On this, thank God we have... uh, place to live Thursday because it's looking like a lot of us may not here in the future if we keep going down this awful road of government laws created around housing and it it's going to affect our housing whether we think it will or not so we had this conversation yesterday with Eric Steven we're going to continue it today because Steven Law Office has lots of experience in this area of housing and government laws we'll jump into that conversation after inspiration. Our inspiration today is more precious than gold. Have you ever looked through low-priced items at a yard sale and dreamed that you might find something of incredible value? It happened in Connecticut when a floral Chinese antique bowl purchased for just $35 at a yard sale was sold at a 2021 auction for more than $700,000. The piece turned out to be a rare historical significant artifact from the 15th century, It's a stunning reminder that what some people consider of little worth can actually have great value. Writing to believers scattered through the known world, Peter explained that their faith in Jesus was belief in the one who'd been rejected by the wider culture. Despised by most of the religious Jewish leaders and crucified by the Roman government, Christ was deemed worthless by many because he didn't fulfill their expectations and desires. But though others had dismissed Jesus' worth, he was chosen by God and precious to him. His value for us is infinity more precious than silver or gold. And we have the assurance that whoever chooses to trust Jesus will never be ashamed of their choice. When others reject Jesus as worthless, let's take another look. God's Spirit can help us see the priceless gift of Christ, who offers to all people the invaluable invitation to become part of the family of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for living a life of obedience so that we can become part of your family. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, part of his family, and he's, uh, it's great that he's preparing a place for us because we might not have a place here soon because the cost of housing will be out of reach for most of us. And it was interesting that this was an uh, inspiration uh, with Peter because I was thinking, you know, we're, we're robbing Peter to pay Paul, and I feel like I'm Peter, and Paul is the criminal actors in the subsidized housing market, and it's not just the tenants. It is the advocates that are pushing basically for government-owned property because they've chased out all the private landlords. And we know what that looks like. It looks like slums. It looks like a third-world country. And the garbage disposal then becomes dumpster fires where they burn the trash because of the breakdown of government. And I'm seeing this happen in major cities. And we just have got to find a way to get our government in line on, on how to handle these things, because the cost of government's out of control. 2003, the state budget was $23 billion. Fast forward 20 years to 2023, $70 billion. That's 10 times the amount of inflation uh, in the size of government. A lot of that is going to subsidized programs and also advocacy groups, funded nonprofits to go after property owners and taxpayers. So we're going to jump back into a conversation here with Eric Stevens, Stephen Law, Stephen Law Office, and the landlord-tenant laws. We left yesterday's show, and my thought was we didn't even get to talk about 
the anti-discrimination laws that they're forcing on landlords. I remember a few years back, they talked about that where they didn't want, and I don't know, you can tell me if this went into play. They don't want landlords to be able to look at criminal histories or past rental histories or any of the, the challenges with a tenant when they put in an application so, for so a place. Tim, what you're talking about it is an order limiting dissemination that limits the public record of the court from being disseminated or disclosed to the public by a consumer reporting agency. And I believe it's RCW 5918, uh, I want to say 255, but that's source of income discrimination. So it's not that. But you're exactly right. And, and these orders limiting dissemination are used by tenant advocates as tools to resolve evictions. And unfortunately, they're used in the really bad cases more often than they're used in the good cases. If the tenant wins the case and it's thrown out, then of course the court should should tell everybody that that was not a good case against the tenant. But these orders limiting dissemination are actually used by the tenant advocates to broker deals to get a tenant to vacate. If there is an agreement to vacate and not and it doesn't go to a hearing and then do a trial, which is what most of the tenant advocates force. But if there is an agreement, they'll want these orders limiting dissemination. And what landlords can do to avoid that is they can do their own public record checks at the courthouse. And you can actually go to the clerk's office and do your own record check and find out if a tenant has, in fact, been evicted. Because a lot of these deals that these tenant advocates broker also require the landlord not to make any negative reference against the tenant down the road. So the landlord's just going to say, oh, well, uh, I can confirm the duration of their residence and that's uh, their tenancy and that's it. Uh, that's like the, I don't know of where else in the law that exists. I'm sure that it does somewhere for some woke reason. But what I see well, happening here is okay. Well, I want to go buy a house or a car. The bank shouldn't be able to look at my credit score because that would discriminate against me acting as if I'm a person that may not pay my bill. So you know, I have perfect credit, but. That's none of their business. I should just be able to buy what I think I can buy. That kind of seems like what they're doing with these landlord-tenant laws. Right, and it and it's even worse than this because Governor Inslee just indicated the other day that he's going to sign an executive order that's going to impact landlord screening on criminal conviction history. And this is after the landlords are already subject to HUD guidance from April 4, 2016 that requires landlords to limit criminal conviction screening and criminal history screening to only convictions for serious crimes against persons or property, and landlords are already required to consider mitigating circumstances. There's a statute in our Fair Credit Reporting Act, RCW 19.182.040, that says that we can only look back seven years from the release of parole or supervision of the court. So there are already all these limitations on landlords and how they can screen for criminal conviction history to begin with. We have 5918.257, which is part of the screening statutes for the Residential Landlord Tenant Act and require notice of adverse action, just like the federal law requires. And, and notwithstanding that, I'm hearing that Governor Inslee is talking about doubling down and making it even more difficult 
for landlords to, to keep people with criminal histories out. And this is in light of what I told you about the Division Three Spokane's own Court of Appeals finding in the Whitewater Creek versus Brady case that landlords are liable to tenants for criminal activity, which is just absurd and is going to cause the loss of property insurance. And I don't know why anybody would want to be engaged in this industry as a landlord, multifamily or not, with these type of rules. And we, we've, we've ran out all the mom and pops, which is, which is really funny. And, and there's some irony here because the tenant advocates are always saying, oh, we hate these big management companies. We hate the, they're not, they're not sensitive to land, the tenants. They don't, they're not sensitive to, to what the tenants are going through. Like I'm a mom and pop landlord. Uh, my tenants, I try to take care of them real good. I know they're all real happy. That's what tenants want. But we've ran the mom and pops like me out of the industry. Nobody right. can interpret the laws anymore unless you've done, and this is, unless this is all you do. Yeah, well, so, as hold a, on. My, my mama hairs go up because we have all these new apartment buildings that are being built. Uh, some of them are being built next to the schools to make it convenient to get in and out and get your kids to school. But we have single moms. We have single dads. We have families that are moving in. How do these laws keep these kids safe? And not only that, we have new regulations that are allowing child carers to be built in these apartment facilities that they themselves have licensing regulations that say that a lot of these people with these backgrounds that these landlords can't check into are not allowed to be anywhere on the premise. That's a major problem. It's a major problem. And, and how does that keep these children safe in that environment? Well, if, if you were at the legislative level and you were trying to sell this, uh, you'd say, oh, you'd pat yourself on the back and you'd say, well, we gave in 59186 50, uh, we gave a section that allowed you to expel somebody that's arrested uh, for sex offense or somebody who has to have a sex offender registration, and they'd tell you that we keep those people out of subsidized housing. They're not eligible for but those programs. But hasn't the state also limited some of that as far as the, the legal guidelines because they've had such a problem housing? Because one of the big groups that we house as taxpayers are sex offenders because no one wants to hire them. Well, and it's funny, I've worked for some of the housing providers that work with those people, and, and uh, despite their uh, darndest efforts, they get harassed uh, too. So they, the, the government's made it really hard for any landlord, no matter what their noble mission is, to, uh, to run their housing. It's, if you're a market-rate housing provider, it's tough. Uh, it's tough to make a nickel. If you're a subsidized housing provider, it's tough to run a place that's safe. Well, in a and, lot of these places, too, we have a mix of what you were just describing there, market rate and affordable housing, because we had those federal and state tax breaks for folks that built a certain percentage of subsidized housing in a complex where, or, or they called it affordable housing. Every time a politician says affordable housing, it gets more expensive is kind of the way I see it. But tell us what you think about those situations. Well, I think tax credit housing is great. And I think tax credit housing is one of the better ideas as opposed to rent control, because it's a, it's an incentive for construction and develop development. I think the real, uh, ticket that we need to put more stock in are, are these rent subsidies and the voucher programs. The VA VASH voucher program, I think, has been pretty good for the veteran side. The Section 8 Housing Choice voucher program has its success stories in part, but I think vouchers are a better way when we're talking about inequities in, in the rental market, and inflation's killing all of us. I mean, it's it's killing everybody at, at all ends of the spectrum that I'm dealing with, uh, including myself, and I'm dealing with it, and, and you're talking 
talking earlier, Tim, about rising costs. Well, I see them across the board. And, you know, whether it's getting a plumber to my place or an electrician over to some property, you know, all my costs have increased exponentially. And yeah, the fuel it, costs for all those folks that are coming out. Amen. You've got everything. Wood and drywall every time walls get punched or yep. ruined yeah. or. Well, the cost Toilets of, overflow. Yeah, the cost of labor, the cost of wood, the cost of right. drywall, the cost to uh, and the regulation on the timber industry. It goes all the way from the timber industry to the hardware store to the developer to the investor to the tenant to the taxpayer. It, this and, is state government to, yeah, failure. Sure, and to your point, uh, the legislature just doubled down last year on landlord landlords with withholding deposit money and there's a statute rcw 59 that talks about uh how much time a landlord has before they have to refund a deposit or send a letter that there's not going to be a right refund and then the legislature doubled down and made it much more difficult with respect to withholding any portion of the deposit because of damage beyond ordinary use and defining what that is and then making conditions on the landlords having to provide a lot of receipts and and supporting documentation to uh to hold back those monies so there's been a real big push at the legislative level and at the appellate level uh, in the last two years relative to security deposits limiting how much landlords can take and then uh, regulating how much landlords can keep and that's that's more of the consumer push that that our our society is trying to help tenants on and i i like that okay uh, I can see some of that much better than the regulatory stuff with respect to making it harder to get bad actors out. This uh, the prohibitions on on conduct and making it so hard for landlords with the right to counsel to get bad actors out for conduct. That's the big part. And then well, and for right to counsel, we got to take a break here in just a moment. I want to talk about that because for me, when I I hear about the aspects you're saying that are okay where these limiting factors on on the deposits and how much they can keep and those limiting factors maybe they're okay but they seem to compound on top of the other problems so then you have the bad actors that are using the bad laws to continue to be bad actors the advocates that are getting funding from the government to help the bad actors and then on top of that they also have the limiting factors on deposits and things when they've already been a bad tenant so we're going to take a break we're going to come back and talk about the lawfare that keeps public officials off the ballot oh no wait the lawfare that keeps bad tenants in housing we'll be right back and welcome back to this Thursday episode with Eric Stevens, Stephen Law Office. Man, the education we're getting here on landlord-tenant law, I, I sure, I think I'm a dummy for paying rent. I think I'm a, a dummy for being a property owner when I could just live for free from place to place and use advocates and their lawfare against landlords to keep me housed from one uh, scam to the next. It sounds like that's uh, pretty lucrative here in Washington State, and it, it seems like the government has put that into place, maybe not intentionally, maybe there's there's good intentions behind some of their laws, but I think that they, they think that government is going to be the solution to keep everyone housed, even the bad actors that are, are causing trouble. So Eric, tell us a little bit about uh, the lawfare. How, how, how do they pay for all these attorneys that are advocating for the bad actors that are causing problems in low income and subsidized housing. Well, with with the adoption of RCW 59-18-640, the tenant doesn't pay for counsel anymore, and there's not a level playing field. And there's been this idea that that there wasn't a level playing field before because the landlord could afford a lawyer and had a lawyer, but 
the reality of it is I, we really had volunteer lawyers at the courthouse for the last decade. And uh, most of the evictions that, that my uh, clients were, were prosecuting in all the counties east of the Cascade Mountains in Washington and northern Idaho, you know, I was usually seeing a volunteer lawyer uh, on those cases that would work in, in good faith and earnestly to try to help connect those tenants with, with different resources to effectuate solutions. And we saw a lot of resolution. I've always been able to resolve about 30% of my caseload for the most part. And now with right to counsel, what I see, and I, I mentioned this the other day, is what I tend to see is that these progressive advocates, they don't even care about people. They're just trying to manufacture hypothetical fact patterns so they can then take the case to appeal and try to get a progressive change in the law because they found some sort of glitch in the system that they can exploit with that hypothetical fact pattern. And they don't really care about connecting people with resources. And I, I've okay, actually- we gotta slow down just a minute here because <laughs> this, so a right, so I understand, you, you know, if you're someone that gets arrested by law enforcement, you know, you have the right to remain silent. You know, if you can't afford an attorney, one will be appointed to you. You know, that kind of thing. Everyone has their right to their day in court in criminal law. Now, I, as a consumer, am sick of the increased prices because of the theft in the retail. Let's just say, for example, do I have a right to sue the government for not enforcing the laws and causing my costs to go up. Don't I have a right to an attorney? I mean, that's a civil case, and we're talking about a civil case where somebody's violating their contract with the landlord, and they have a right to a taxpayer-funded right. attorney. So, so there's a public duty doctrine where the public, most of these public agencies owe a duty to no one. They owe a duty to the whole and a duty to no one in particular. But They owe uh, a duty to the taxpayer funding uh, they're receiving so that they can justify their existence right, right. even though they're protecting bad actors, right. it sounds like to me. Right. But the, the, you know, the tenant advocacy, these tenants are appointed. Uh, they're appointed on taxpayer dollars. They work on grant money. They, they handle very limited numbers of cases from what I understand even though the cases, case files are fairly small, they, uh, they are trying to get more and more funding so their lawyers have to handle less and less cases so they can argue those cases and defend those cases more vigorously. And uh, the marching orders during the pandemic were to, to try to take every case to a jury trial was what I heard. And uh, they did a good job of, of making the landlord's costs increase exponentially. I've personally heard from people that were not happy with people that they uh, were either related to or they knew, where all through the pandemic, they never paid their rent, even though the government came up with the money because there was all this federal money, this printed money that said, okay, well, we're going to cover your rent even though you didn't pay it, even though we're subsidizing you in these other areas of your life. Then they stiffed the landlord again at the end of that whole program, and there the government's supposed Tim, to step in again. Tim, the CARES Act protects people on entitlements from eviction for non-payment of rent when their income wasn't interrupted because of the entitlement. Well, they actually and, and, had more income because they got checks in the mail. They had more I, income. I than never before. understood it. I never understood how my no affordable nonprofit clients that were administering subsidized housing weren't getting rent from people that never missed a beat. Well, and people I, that it, it's, it sounds it's like those crazy. programs need to be audited. If the monies weren't used to go towards the rents, then they all should have to be paid back. Where'd the money go? It's welfare fraud. I mean, so you've got somebody who, let's say, they have to pay a hundred dollars rent in a subsidized unit. They don't work. They don't really have income that they earn. That hundred dollars comes from another welfare program to pay 
their portion of the subsidized rent. So they're not actually paying anything. It's coming from another taxpayer funded resource. And then on top of that, these folks were getting either $120 checks. Even the kids were getting money from the school districts, right? If they were low income school districts, they're still getting checks from the school districts for their children, but then they got a COVID check in the mail. So they had more money than before totally funded by the taxpayer and they're still stiff in the landlords. I would think that the government would be subsidizing the efforts of attorneys to deal with these people that were causing welfare fraud. Yeah. You'd like to see that. It, but it, none of that's occurring. I've never heard of it. You've never heard of it. Even though these people are violating the law. Well, there's some, the there's taxpayer. a lot of different uh, programs out there. There's a lot of different yeah. ways within which people receive subsidized housing. Sometimes the money goes directly to the landlord. Sometimes it goes to the tenant. Sometimes the tenant's liable for a portion of the rent. Sometimes the tenant has no portion of the rent. There's, there's a, a number of, of different, yeah, yeah, a lot of different programs. And there are a lot of really good people that are very deserving participating in these programs and that did everything the right way. Again, and, it's the bad actors that right. cause the problems. And if the landlords had the tools to deal with the very few bad actors in a cost-effective way, we would dramatically reduce all the costs to everybody and your taxes. We could go off on a whole lot of things. You know, you talked about a bigger jail. That's a, that's one of them. Well, that, I, I looked at the cost of, of the homelessness. We talked right. about that on the program it's, here the a big, lot. Hey, the big issue is mental health, and there's not yeah. an advocate in housing that won't tell you that has any salt in the, in, and any skin in the game that won't tell you mental health is the big issue. And where's the line between re, least restrictive means of treatment and threat to community. And well, the stuff. problem is we shut down mental institutions where people could be cared for responsibly and other people that lived in those conditions with them were kept safe. Now we've just thrown the mentally ill into the housing developments throughout our communities. So I look at this from the lens of, you know, for one, you've got the thinking about these people like the homeless individuals with mental illness who are abused in many ways on the streets of every city in this state. Who's protecting their rights? Well, none of us, because it's all the money's going into the new industrial complex of homeless advocacy and all of that stuff. It's cheaper to incarcerate or institutionalize and keep these people safe than having them out on the streets. Now, the advocates will say, well, those institutions, there was incidences of abuse. Of course there was, but they were documented. We're not documenting all the abuse that's going on now. It's just, it's a free-range prison, and we're all incarcerated with the problem is the way I see it. And we're spending way more than we should because a jail cell or a medical room where someone can get the care they need in their mental health, physical health is cheaper than what we're spending on, on these issues that are, are happening down the street from every one of us uh, in our neighborhoods. I agree, Tim. I think we've been kicking the can down the road for uh, since Reagan administration. I, I saw one flew over the cuckoo's nest and the end of institutional care or forced institutional care. We've got a lot of hard questions to, to ask and answer, and uh, nobody wants to to be the elected official that steps up to the plate and addresses these things in a responsible way. I think Eric Adams in in New York has tried uh, a little bit. I think it's a fine line, but there are a lot of people that do constitute a direct threat to themselves and to others that are just being thrown into the the housing populace, as you say, housing or the homeless, you know, institutions, right, both sides, and and you know, we we have a lot of great 
programs at first blush that are really inadequately operated. We do very little to prepare people for rehousing when they're taken out of homelessness. There needs to be more civic training, more understanding of what obligations are. and Life skills. Life skills training, for sure. I think a lot of these people are doomed in, in a lot of these programs for failure. I don't understand why the programs haven't gotten better and figured out what these issues are because they seem fairly obvious. Well, the programs need to be for people who genuinely need them. I just said a week or so ago on the program, it's never going to leave my memory bank when a 14-year-old girl came up to me one time a few years back and told me because she was having an issue with a family member that she would never work. 14, she knew she would never work because she knew the, the programs and how everything works. And so now we're left with a society where People, you know, you're, this whole conversation does encourage me to go back to work and work that overtime and pay those property taxes and live in the state of Washington, right? So we've got to have a way where responsible people, or people can be trained to be responsible, that they go and work. If they don't work, that's what these programs are for if they can't work. Now we're just funding everybody under the sun. And, of course, we're a sanctuary state. You brought up Eric Adams. The problems that other major cities and states are seeing – that are sanctuary states and cities, this problem's only going to get worse if we keep seeing millions of people come into our country and demand housing. I, I don't disagree. I, you know, I was at the legal financial obligations window. I, I was there for a, at a at a different window next to it, and I heard a gentleman coming to pay his probation fees and the the gal asked him if he had the money he said he didn't have the money that month and she said what what's the deal are you working and he said no work work doesn't work for me and I thought oh my gosh this guy has determined that he is tapped out of the labor force and he was a young man and I thought I never realized we could just decide we weren't going <laughs> to work for the rest of our lives i'm i'm uh, 60 now and yeah. i uh, i don't see any uh, end at the tunnel real quick uh, uh in light of uh, inflation i think i'm going to be uh, grinding away for another several years at least uh so uh, that idea that you didn't have to work to make ends meet was really difficult for uh, me un to swallow it's not a reality <laughs> I, I remember when uh, i was young in my 20s and and, you know, I was like, what are, it's all this welfare stuff about, you know, I'm going, I'm working, I'm paying taxes. I'm a young man, don't really know anything, but, you know, young enough to think I know, knew a lot, right? And I realized how ignorant I really was. And, you know, I was told, wow, you're 20, you're white, you're young, able-bodied, you're going to work. <laughs> That's just the way it was. They don't even do that now, yeah. right? I mean, we're seeing able-bodied people that should be out. And it's not just the fact that they should be working and we don't want to subsidize them because they're a burden to the taxpayer. Where's their self-worth going to be a few years from now? Are they ever going to work? We're looking at a landslide of our culture that requires funding. Eventually, you run out of other people's money. Well, and I think that's the problem. I think we've seen a generation or two that have been convinced that socialism works on real life. Not, I mean, it looks good on paper, but it doesn't work good in life. We know that because we work for a living. But we have these kids that are in their early 20s and even some of these teens that are coming out of high school that think that the government should give them a monthly allotted living and part of that's going to go to their subsidized housing. The other part's going to go to their food and they think it's all going to work out. Well, they left high school. Huh. We know in Washington state, public school students across the board, 67% regularly attend, even though we're funding 
education at $17,000, $18,000 per student. I think we have an overall state failure of all of our systems from education to subsidy programs, and we're not helping law enforcement. And of course, we're seeing those, like you said, mom and pop individuals in the landlord areas of the economy leaving and they were not just the best for individuals to deal with on a personal basis they were also the lower cost even for state-funded programs they kept tenants longer there was less instability in the marketplace so a whole lot of reason to have our state government make changes again that state hotline for the legislature is 1-800-562-6000. Get on that taxpayer-funded website, that social media site with the lawmakers, ledge.wa.gov. Find the bills that are coming up. I'd vote con on every rent control bill if you want to keep your rents reasonable because it's just the opposite, guys. If we get rent control, we will have such rent inflation in this state and we will have such... Because those that are not subsidized are going to be paying the extra rent that the subsidized are not paying. Well, you're going to see a just market, a even greater market exodus by the mom and pops, and you're going to see a gigantic halt in market development because nobody's going to build anymore. Washington State is last in America in housing construction and development, thanks to our government. Inslee can pat himself on the back. We're number one for being last. And the reason we're having a housing crisis in Washington State is because nobody builds here, and nobody's going to continue to build here if we keep adopting these progressive tenant laws that make it impossible for landlords to even navigate through the laws right the, I as spend, well as the as well as the rest of the laws that our state government has been passing that make it undesirable to live in a state run by tyrants we've got to uh, take off for the day thank you eric Stephen, for your time Stephen law office look up your legislature take action folks it's going to affect us all all that being said we'll be with you folks again tomorrow we need Bye-bye. your vote